It's our second week in story, and what we've been doing is going through the classic books of the Bible, the classic stories. I literally pulled out a children's Bible and went, what are the major stories that in church we sort of take for granted? So my biggest pet peeve is when you walk into a church service and the pastor's like, open your Bibles, one, assuming that you have a Bible on your person, which most people do not, two, open your Bibles to like Mark 4. And you don't know who Mark is because you've never walked into a church before. And you're like, what's this number four? I have no clue. So what we're trying to do is build a base with us all to get some of that base knowledge, some of that Sunday school goodness into us so that when I say things like David and Goliath, we're not like, what is that? We're actually like, oh, yeah, I know that story. Um, And so this is all about finding ourselves in God's narrative. So if we engage with these stories correctly, not only are we going to find ourselves within the story, but we'll find ourselves through the story. And so I'm really excited to uh, journey. Last week we did creation. Uh, We did all of Genesis 1, and today we're going to engage with Genesis 2 and 3. Um, And this is one of the craziest stories that's in the Bible of Adam and Eve and what Christians call the fall. And so we're going to get into that this morning. Um, But before we do... Let me just pray for us. So God, uh, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here this morning, and I'm also thrilled just to be able to uh, continue in this series uh, of story. We're all part of a bigger story, and uh, especially as we engage with your word, your Bible, your scripture, Lord, um, we get these amazing stories, and usually they're of, of people doing incredible things, but they're not always of people coming from incredible circumstances. You use this strange tactic where you flip the script uh, so often, and it's so much fun to uh, dive into these stories together and learn more about you and the way that you work. Um, so I pray that you give us uh, just more of you this morning, Lord. Amen. So this is the story of Adam and Eve. You guys can find it uh, if you want on your phones. It's Genesis 3, um, and we're going to start in Genesis 3, uh, 3 through 13. So Genesis 3, 3 through 13. Um, and this is called The Fall. So I'm going to read this. It's a big chunk. The words will be back here. Bear with me, but this is where we get sort of the, the gist of the story. So... This is after uh, the creation account. This is after the sixth day. God has created man. God has created woman. uh, And now they're operating in this garden. And remember, we're approaching this like a beautiful poem because that's what it is. This is not a textbook. This is a poem. So we're going to approach it in that sort of way. Uh, So it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat um, from it, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? 
He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That's fair. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, is this what you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, it's a weird, wacky story. Let's, let's go through it here. There are two naked people. There is a snake that's talking, and then there seems to be this fruit, and this fruit, because of this fruit, now we are forever disconnected from that garden, and we get kicked out, and the whole rest of the story of the Bible is God trying to get us back because we ate this fruit. So, you can see if we took this literally, it would be even stranger. But when we look at this like a poem, we look at this in the way that it was actually written, all of these are symbols. And all of these are beautiful symbols so that we can see where God is working and how he wants to get us back to the space that Adam and Eve were in. I read this week, it was a... Um, that's by a priest, and I can't remember his name. But uh, he was talking about Genesis as, as Genesis is a description of the soul. So what it is when we're reading Genesis and we're reading through stories like this, we're seeing the journey of the soul. We're seeing the journey of our spiritual lives. And for all of us, at some point, we're going to have to leave the garden. This knowledge thing comes into play, and we have to leave the garden. And then there's this beautiful story and many, many stories in the Bible of God trying to sort of guide us back into that space, but with the knowledge that we've learned. So, again, two naked people, snake. Um, and let's do a little refresher, because uh, before this, we have Adam and Eve that were just created, right? So, uh, last week, if you were here, you heard my nerdy rant on the seven words that started uh, Genesis. So, basically, the number seven... Uh, becomes extremely significant in Genesis because the creation account happens over seven days, right? So we have light on the first day, there's water on the second day, it continues until we have finally man on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rests. It's completed. So as we begin to encounter scripture, we read and we see that there are these groups of sevens, like for instance, Jesus was asked, like, how many times do I need to forgive someone? And he said, not seven times, but 77 times, seven times. Why are there so many sevens in that sentence? What are we looking for? There's also uh, Joshua who walks around the walls of Jericho seven times. There's all these weird moments. And when we encounter something like that, it's the author of the scripture kind of going like, pause. Take a second and try and figure out what's going on a layer deeper than how you're just reading. So in the, in the continuation of my Genesis nerdy sevens, um, there's something here that gets revealed that is radically, radically uh, progressive for the ancient context that Genesis was written in. Um, first of all, the reason that we know this is a poem right off the bat is because Adam is actually a Hebrew word for humanity, and then Eve is a Hebrew word meaning mother of all living. So we have humanity and mother of all living. These are never called by name. So Really, what it's talking about is a symbol for the entire human race. We have humanity and mother of all living, right? Now, this is really interesting. In no other creation account, period, in no other ancient like, description of how the world was made and how we were created, is there ever any mention of how a woman is created. 
So they'll go through and they'll say, this is how man came to be through the dust. There's often like a dirt metaphor um, from dust we came, dust we will return, that sort of thing. Uh, but in no other ancient religious text is there any description of how a woman is made. So right off the bat, we see this sort of like, like for some reason, this religion, this God cares deeply for the equality of people. He cares deeply for the woman. Now I'm going to get really nerdy, and this is going to be fun. So there's not one line in other texts, but there are six lines describing the creation of a female, of woman, in Genesis. Six. And I was like, dang it, that's not seven. Why is that not seven? <laughs> so you dig deeper. There is only one line for the creation of man. So there are six lines for the creation of the female, and there is one line for the creation of man. And what that means, when you put those together, seven, that is the completion of creation that is in a woman. So don't even get me going on this women in leadership stuff in other churches. It's 2016. <laughs> Read Genesis 2. Um, anyway, so that, that, that the Bible and these stories, they get a pretty sexist rap, but that's why we can't read this stuff like a textbook, because if we read it like a textbook, then we get in trouble, right? How much struggle could we have avoided if we started looking at this thing like the beautiful poem that it is? Um, okay, so uh, let's, let's go back to that story that we were talking about, the, the, the scripture that we read. We have uh, two specific trees. So there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God says, do not go to that tree, do not eat that fruit, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And then you have the tree of life, which is free. You can eat from any other tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and the serpent, they, he tricks Eve into taking a piece of this fruit and eating it, and they take the bait. And we have to remember the power of story. This story sets up a pattern in the Bible where people are given amazing things by God. There's this abundant garden in which their needs are totally taken care of. But what we see here for the first time, and this becomes just this pattern in all the stories we're going to go through, is there's this abundance given by God, like, I got you, you're here, awesome. And then the character, or even the, the people group, takes it a step further and says, okay, well, we have this abundance, but what I really want is to be more like God. I want more control. I want more power. We see it in the, the Tower of Babel, which is another story we're going to do. These people try and build this building so big that they can get up to heaven. God eventually has to knock it down and scatter them with different languages and say, like, no, 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 you don't get it. This is me. I'm up here, and I'm in control. We see it with David and Bathsheba. So David is this king. He's given this enormous kingdom, but he sees this woman on a rooftop, and he goes, I want that. So I'm going to go and take a little bit more control, a little bit more power, a little bit more like God, because I got this. I'm under control, right? So this is the first time that we see, like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to give me wisdom. I'm going to be more like God if I eat this. I'm going to know good and evil, right? I'll be like God. And the crazy part about this is as soon as they eat that fruit, it says like the scales fall from their eyes and they look at each other and they realize that they are naked. So for the first time, this vulnerability, this, this like nakedness, this symbol for like shame comes into the world. So with sin comes shame. And the shame part is what we're really going to dive into this morning because that's the trickiest, like, gets underneath the skin and is so hard to get rid of. 
But we can see clearly that in God's like perfect version of the world in which they were created in, shame did not exist. For the first time, they look at each other in the eyes and they go, oh gosh, get to the fig leaves. I don't know why the fig leaves, but fig leaves. I got to protect myself now. I'm not open anymore. I got I to gotta, like, hold this because I'm deeply, deeply ashamed. And God comes to them. This is the craziest part about the story. God is walking. It describes him walking in the cool of day to come and get Adam and Eve. To me, that sounds like a pretty calm, breezy walk. Like, it's not this desperate, like, what have you done? Like, it's just a calm little walk through the garden. And he's completely aware that they've eaten this fruit. Completely aware. And he just sort of strolls calmly through the garden. And when he gets to where he knows they are, they are hiding from him for the first time. And you have to just go like, oh. Like, God must be just like, no. You don't get it. Like, you're not supposed to hide. So it was shame, not sin, that really like, got them kicked out of that garden. Right? There's the original sin, but then there's this, this shame thing that keeps carrying the sin. So really, like, Shame is what gives sin power. Sin may be the root, but it's shame that really like gives sin this edge. So I was 15 years old, and I was playing in this band, and we had a manager, and this was my entire life. Like I wanted to be in this band touring for the rest of my life. I thought that we were going to be in this band touring for the rest of my life. And this manager sort of held my life like in the palm of his hand. This guy controlled everything. He was the reason we were able to record in cool studios. He was the guy banking everything. And he was also our manager. And so we get to the end of like a recording process. And we're about to put out this record, but we have to master it. So mastering is basically at the end of everything. You've done all the like heavy lifting, and you've done all the major mixing, and recorded everything. But at the end, like mastering is sort of like the polishing thing. Um, and I had a relationship with Alan. Most of the band did not. I was sort of the songwriter guy, and he was the guy that I oh, lose someone back there. Uh, he was the guy that would call. He would, he would call me to touch base with the whole band. I was sort of like the point person, and he just sort of rather bluntly said, like, "Hey, uh, you can come to the mastering thing, but like, don't invite the other guys. I don't want it to be like this big, like, cramped space thing." Um, and I, in my 15-year-old like wisdom, um, thought that okay, I'll tell the guys that. Like, I'm going to go, but I'm totally going to throw Alan under the bus because, like, I don't want to have to be the one to tell them that they can't come. Like, this was like telling, you know, like, you can't go, um, you can't go to Disneyland or something like that. It would have just destroyed them. So I wrote a text, and this was, like, pure flip phone glory days. <laughs> I wrote a text uh, to the band members, and just this scathing text about Alan uh, including words that I can no longer say as a pastor, but they were all in this text message, and I sent it off just completely throwing Alan under the bus, and 15 seconds later, my phone rings, and it's Alan. And it turns out that in my writing of this scathing text that was all about Alan, I texted Alan. Uh, so I had sent this awful, gut-wrenchingly terrible like text. So I answer the phone, and Alan's like, Josh? And instantly I knew. I was like, oh, no. I've sent this text to Alan. My, my heart, like, stops. I can feel my stomach just like, and, and I'm in school at this point. I'm 15. So I'm in my theater class when he calls. And I, like, dip out. 
and I, I answer the phone, and then I don't really remember what the heck happened in that phone call, because it was like that sort of like, oh, I'm not listening, I can't believe this is actually happening type of a moment. I hang up the phone, I am devastated. Like, I'm welling up with tears. I run to my parents' minivan, which I was driving at the time. I open the door, I shut it, and I skipped the next two classes and just, like, sat in this shame, in this deep, like, what am I going to do? Because at that point, my whole universe was wrapped around this thing. What am I going to do? My life is over. And I just remember thinking, I just wish that there was something I could say to get Alan's forgiveness. I wish that I could just say something or we could have a conversation and he would forgive me because I can't sit in this shame anymore. There comes a point where like the original thing that you did happened, but then it's the shame thing that carries with you and eats you alive because of that original thing. So I spent these these like two days, which felt like an eternity, before I was able to talk to Alan again. And finally, we had a conversation. He just wrote it off like, this kid's a stupid teenager. And we moved on with our lives. But in that two days, my shame was just overwhelming. And I think this is a really, really, really important topic for us today, right now. Because we, as a nation and as a society, have a huge shame problem. Like, it's an epidemic. We're really good at feeling ashamed. And we're also really, really good at shaming people. And especially now, like, you don't even have to leave the comfort of your home to shame people. You don't have to leave the comfort of your keyboard to shame people. And as Christians, we're, we're called to something outside of that, but so often we are the worst ones at it. So we love to inflict shame on people and call it justice, right? And in the garden, there is no shame And in the kingdom, there is no shame. Everything that Jesus came to proclaim, there's nothing like that. And when we embrace shame, we decide to leave the comforts of both of those. Um, How many of you guys remember this? Uh, It's okay if you don't. It's a weird picture. Do we have that picture of the guy in the baseball hat? (laughs) Okay. If we don't have it, it's cool. This poor soul, and you can't see it, but there's a picture of a catcher going up to catch a baseball, and then there's a picture of a guy right behind him leaning in a little bit farther than the catcher. Um, I'm not even going to mention this guy's name because it's deeply, deeply embarrassing, and it would just cause more shame to his poor life. But this poor soul deflected a baseball that was coming. It was hit. It was hit into the stands, and the Chicago Cubs right fielder runs up to go and catch it, and because of this guy's hand, The ball is bounced over to the side, is deflected, and so it becomes a foul ball. This happened in 2003, and uh, this this became like the first time that something like this had had really, really happened, and it cost them. The the Chicago Cubs had not been to uh, to the World Series in 58 years, and this was their first real shot at it. And because of this guy, it caused this downward spiral. They lost the game. They lost the next two games. It was this cultural moment where this poor individual caused the down spiral of an entire major league team. So there weren't any jumbotrons at, uh, at the field at this time. Uh, so they didn't like replay it or anything. Everyone was obviously like mad. But on TV, they kept replaying this one moment over the course of the game. So anytime there was a break, on the screen, back to this dude with his hand and deflecting the ball. So what happens is like people start getting really, really angry. 
and they start texting their friends or calling their friends that are in the stadium that they know have gone to see the game, and they start going, you got to get this guy. It got to the point where the police had to show up or the security at the field, take the guy out, and the guy walks through the stand. There's video footage of this, and people are, like, chucking beer cans, food, like, trying to physically harm this dude, all because of one bad moment. This happened in 2003, and the research I did on this follow-up is that he still has to, like, change his phone number and his email address regularly because he still receives threats. The police had to stay with him for a week. He almost lost his job, all because of this one moment. And to a Cubs fan, that feels like justice, right? But that's not what justice is. That's literally ruining someone's life over a baseball game, right? Or how about the the biggest shame thing we have in, in our American society? A person named Monica Lewinsky, right? Even when I say that name, we're all like, ooh. Like, that's the biggest example of shame that I can point to. If you have time this week, it takes like 20 minutes. She has this incredible TED Talk on this idea of shame. Um, And she basically, she argues that empathy is the main weapon that we can use against shame. And it's so good, and you should definitely check it out. But I researched this uh, this week, and this all went down in 1998, and I was a kid at that point. I had no idea until this week that she was 21 years old when that happened. 21. Can you imagine being a 21-year-old in the face of the most powerful man on the entire planet? Like, what would you do? Because of this moment, this is the first time the internet broke a story before an actual, like, like print or TV news station did. And this is the first time that this viral shaming thing came into existence. For the first time ever, America had the ability to share this story faster than ever before, and to increase the shame on this person's life more than they ever had in the past. She went through depression. She went through suicide attempts. She could not hold a job. Like, this ruined this person's life. And, and like, on the political spectrum, the Clintons were able to kind of walk away from it. But because she's a woman, and because this happened at such an early age, it was really easy for the entire country just to go, that's the person to blame. It's shame. And you would think that as Christians, as followers of this guy, Jesus, who is all about, like, unshaming people, we would be the best at going, like, come on in. We're so often the worst. I would argue that Christians are more known for our shaming and our shame than who we love and who we accept. That's what marks us, and that's not okay. Because, you see, what Jesus did on the cross actually takes away this whole issue of sin. So Jesus dying on the cross, the sin part is done. It's broken. It's gone. We're forgiven. We live in light of that forgiveness. But the thing that wasn't able to be taken away is that idea of shame. So when sin happens, we have to learn to forgive radically so that we won't shame or feel ashamed. We've got to forgive ourselves but to forgive other people in the same way that Jesus did so that this shame thing can honestly just be like, nipped in the bud, and so that Christians can be known as the type of people who are actively in the business of forgiveness, love, and grace, because that's what Jesus was all about. If you look at any miracle that Jesus did, water to wine, that seems simple, but his very first miracle was to avoid embarrassment on behalf of the host. 
So a host in this ancient culture, if he ran out of wine at a wedding, it would have been devastating to his reputation. Jesus decides, I will not let you feel that shame. We're going to keep this party going. And he creates like gallons and gallons of wine out of water. Right? If he heals someone, the leper, the sick, and the blind, what he's doing is not just healing them of their physical ailments, but he's like, you don't have to be ashamed of the way you are anymore. You, can, you are healed. It's like giving them their dignity back, giving them their humanity back. That's what Jesus was all about. He came to wipe away not just the sin and the big thing that he did on the cross, but we can see in his actual ministry and what he did here on earth was actively taking the shame from others and just saying, get out of here. He's about love, he's about grace, and he's about empathy. So as we engage the world this week, as we go into our, our, our work, um, our lives, I think we need to remember how Jesus taught us to pray. And how he taught us to pray was, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't talk about heaven a lot. It, res- it resonates. Um, it's not something I'm like, super interested in. Uh, I think that Jesus was a lot more about like the here and the now and what's going to happen and the kingdom at hand and like we got to figure this stuff out here. We don't need to wait for later. Um, but heaven's a reality. That's an amazing, beautiful reality. That's going to be incredible. But like, I don't know, when I picture heaven, I don't see us like worrying about what we said last Tuesday at dinner that may have offended someone. I don't see us worrying about like who we've hurt or the mistakes that we might have made. All that shame, all that guilt, all that stuff is just not going to exist. And so Jesus was radically brilliant when he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is keep pulling those little bits of heaven and make this place look more like that. Make the here and the now a reality that you want to live in that looks a lot more like heaven. And so for us, this week, if we can engage in that like forgiveness principle and just start like radically forgiving people and not shaming people and doing that in practical ways, like if you see the article and you think, oh man, I could scathe, do not scathe. <laughs> if you see the news thing and you're like, oh, I want to talk about it, don't talk about that. Like just do the practical stuff. We can stop this shame, this thing that's eating us from the inside out. And we can do that because the sin thing is done. Right? So let me pray for us as we step into that. Um, we're going to take communion together right after this. So um, Harrison's going to come up and uh, lead us in another song I'll be playing to you. But um, just walk up and uh, you can uh, rip off a piece of challah, make it a big piece, get your carbs in for the day, and then dip it in the bread or in the wine. Um, and uh, we're going to experience and feast together and experience communion together. So uh, let me pray for us, and then just kind of funnel up uh, as you will to do that. Lord God, I am so grateful uh, for this story of Adam and Eve, uh, for the story of humanity coming into being and seeing what our, our biggest issues are and seeing how sin causes shame and how we can live in the beautiful reality that you have created through the cross, which is where uh, sin just has no hold on us anymore. And so shame can't have any hold on us anymore. And so, Lord, we thank you that um, on the last night you sat down with your disciples, you broke the bed and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And you took the cup and you said, this is my blood spilled out for you, a sign of the new covenant. Drink of it and remember me. 
And so as we experience communion this morning, we recognize that you are in this space and we remember you. And uh, I just pray for our time after this. Let us leave this place slowly and hang with each other and grow as community. God, we're just so grateful um, for Resonate. We're so grateful uh, for you. Amen.